All right, hello, welcome to episode number 30 of the Longball Football Podcast, a weekly podcast by two brothers about all things football in Portugal. You're listening to myself, Albert, and as always, I'm joined by my brother, Barney. How are you doing, Barney? You had a good week? Oh, man, it's been um, a heavy week, isn't it? There's been not only lots of football league and osh, but then collapse of the ESL, and it's just been it's been intense, isn't it? What, what an incredible difference a week makes in football, right? A week is such a long time. I mean, you think about this time last week when we were recording and the state that the Super League was in, and also the state that the Portuguese League was in, but a week later and, and things have completely changed. Well, of course, going to deal with the Liga Nacional in a sec, but we should just touch on the European Super League. I mean, the incredible speed that it managed to capitulate was quite remarkable. Did you did you see it coming? Because I'll be honest, man, when we were recording, I was just like, this is it. This is this is what's going to happen. And I mean, I guess you've got to give some credit to the fans who protest and stuff. But I mean, I, the only thing I say is that I did say on the last pod that I thought the ESL nonsense was a power play to push through this Champions League reform, which we're going to stuff discuss in a minute. And I, I feel like that is the case, if I'm honest. Yeah, it does seem to suggest that, doesn't it? I mean, I think last week we were both convinced, you know, the end was near shall we say. And well, the end isn't quite as near, but it's certainly on the horizon, as you alluded to. I think something a lot of people overlooked was the, including ourselves, was the Champions League reformers that got pushed through completely under the radar while the whole Super League thing uh, was happening. Uh, next season's Champions League will involve 20 teams in a kind of league table format rather than the usual group format. Well, Albert, it's, it's so complicated because you say it's 20 teams and I get why you're saying that because... Teams are going to play 10 different opponents, aren't they? But it's, yeah. it's 36 teams. Right. It's four okay. more teams than the current <laughs> season. I, I'll try and explain it as, as I understand it. And you can okay. please correct me if you think different. But so there's 36 teams, yeah. Right. I've never heard of the Swiss system. I, I hate it already because yeah. <laughs> there's 36 teams. And you, if you're one of these teams, you're going to play 10 games, 10 different opponents in a sort of pre-knockout stage. So all these 36 teams are playing 10 games. Five games at home, five games away, and each of the game is a different opponent. So first of all, for me, that's instantly not fair, is it? Because you could be playing, if you're a Porto, say, you're only going to play Bayern Munich once, and that game's away. Like, that's a massive disadvantage. But then you might play someone like Ludogrotz at home. Like, I hate that. And then this, and then after that, you go, the, no, this is where it gets really complicated. <laughs> but I've, uh, and I, I might be getting this wrong now, I'm doubting myself, but I think the top 12 Arts that tens games are finished in this league table automatically go through. The next twelve or fourteen or whatever, then they have to play like a knockout game to get to the knockout stage, which those the top twelve have already got to. And so basically, it's the same business with the ESL, where the big teams are going to get sorted out massively. They've got an easy path to the knockout stage. The lesser teams have got that knockout game after the getting themselves in a decent position in the table. It's just it's an utter mess, utter, utter mess. Well, not only that, but the worst thing about this whole reform, it seems for me, Barney, is this whole business of uh, two teams per season being allowed to qualify based on yeah. historical success. And I believe it was the guys at Copa 90 who simulated uh, which teams from this Premier League season would qualify to Champions League based on the proposed rules. Uh, and that would mean that Leicester, who would finish in fifth, let Leicester, who were in fifth place, would miss out on a Champions League spot to two teams. I can't remember both, but one of which was Arsenal, who are currently sitting in eighth place. What an incredible injustice that would be! I mean, if I was Leicester, I would be, I would be suing. You know, I would, I would be dragging this through the courts. How can this be? 
uh, allowed to happen when teams like you know potentially West Ham or Leicester who are finishing high up in the Premier League table on merit yeah. above teams like Arsenal are then having their Champions League places taken away from them because Arsenal are considered a historically better team. It just seems completely ridiculous. And then how are, how are Leicester and West Ham supposed to boost their coefficient rankings if they're not in the fucking tournament? Exactly. Like, it's that. just it's 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 ridiculous. And not and also this the whole distribution of money. You know, I think the Champions League tradition is about two billion pounds that distributes with throughout the competition. And I think 25% of that is going to go to all the participants. 30% of that is then going to be held to bonus uh, performance bonuses, 15% for the TV market pool, and then 30% for the coefficient ranking again. So it's just sorting out those big teams at the top. I wanted to look at it from a Portugal perspective and what it would mean, because there is this interesting thing where there is a third place up for grabs for the country who is fifth in UEFA's coefficient. You know, we know Portugal are currently six, but they're hot on the hills of France. And, and so it's getting even tighter. So that is going to be a huge battle. And, uh, and it also gives us another reason to want PSG to lose in the Champions League. So it could be good in that sense. I think to see all three of them in this competition, you know, it, that, that still would be good for Portugal. It would be great. But then if those three teams don't even have a chance of making it through this preliminary stage because the odds are stacked in the better team's favour then. You know, there's not much point in it at all. I mean, I wonder whether Porto's fantastic run in the Champions League this season would have been possible if they were uh, part of the new system that's being proposed. I mean, the one thing that this just makes me think, Barney, is what was wrong with the old system, man? Oh, I like the old. Bit... I like the Champions League. It was simple. <laughs> I could understand yeah. it. It made sense, and it rewarded teams that that did well. And you know, I think it's just a real, real shot in the arm that we need to remain conscious of the fact that no matter what we think we've achieved by getting rid of the Super League. Modern football is not set out to help the little guy. It is set out to help those big teams maintain the monopoly that they currently hold on football. So very, very worrying times. We'll obviously have to see what the future holds, but it just it's the type of news that I just find very demoralising. You know, We've celebrated so much mm. Porto doing well in the Champions League and, and we've talked so much about having potentially three Portuguese teams in the league, but it's just a real wake-up call that the truth is the people at UEFA, the people at the top of the table, they don't want the Portuguese teams there. This whole reform is coming into effect. I think it's the 2024-25 season. Is that right? Okay. okay. So there's a few years until that happens. We mentioned the the way the money's going to be distributed in this new form, which is you know potentially going to be even less for with having more teams in the competition and the, the less likelihood of the Portuguese teams say, getting further. So what it does to Albert is you know these next three seasons. If you're sporting, you're getting back into Europe for the first time in a little while, whatever, or Braga hoping to get in there. These are really important seasons because, mm. you know, to get that Champions League money, as, as little as it may be for a team that doesn't get far in the community, but still, you know, a, a really game-changing amount of money if you look within the league. You know, these these next few seasons are, are, are so, so important. Turbulent times ahead with a lot of reforms coming in. Champions League reforms, we're going to see a new TV deal for the Premier League and we're yet to see how that's going to shape things up in the league and also as we're going to discuss at the end of this show potential change to the Premier League which could see the number of teams in the top division change so you know it seems like Portuguese football and European football at the whole at the moment is going for you quite a turbulent time with a lot of changes on the horizon
Well, it seems like every single week on this show, Barney, we start our Liga Nos chat with Sporting, but every single week they provide us with another dramatic game that takes up so much of our attention. And this week they may have just topped it all with a truly dramatic 1-0 win over Braga. Now, before the game, the build-up was absolutely huge and the result did not disappoint. It wasn't quite the end-to-end match we might have hoped for due to an early red card for Sporting's Inacio, which is fair to say completely changed the complexion of the game. And I think we do have to start with that decision, Barney, as it did set the tone for the match as a whole. I've got to say, I feel so relieved for him that they won this game because when he was leaving <laughs> that pitch, I could just see he was thinking, that's it, I've lost them the league. Like the whole narrative of what that Sporting's performance is recently in like Along with every Sporting fan sitting at home watching. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> But look, I mean, we, we were chatting during the game. We both disagree on this. For me, I and I'm surprised at how many sporting fans on Twitter I saw just accept the referee's decision because it's it's not the first time we've seen shit like this. And I'm I'm not being old school by saying you know you get away with the first one or all that. But if you're given a yellow card for do- both of those fouls, you are going to end up with no one on the pitch. And there's plenty of fouls in the rest of this match that weren't given a yellow card. This is one of the biggest games of the season. It's a pressure game, yeah, and there are going to be challenges going in and you cannot be dishing out yellow cards for it. I just thought I didn't like it. And I've, like I said, I've, we've seen it plenty of times this season where the referee just misreads the occasion and just, you know, makes a silly decision. No, I, I honestly, I really do sympathise with that point of view. Uh, I don't quite agree, though. For me, I do think it was two yellow card challenges uh, and I think there were two inexperienced challenges. The question that came to my mind when he got sent off was, would it have been a better choice to start with Neto ahead of him in such a high pressure game you know maybe just that experience but then on the flip side it would have been very difficult for Ruben Amarim having trusted Inacio so much to then take him out of the team I think it would have been difficult for him not to show that confidence like I said though for me both cards correct uh, sadly both clumsy challenges both messy Uh, and I think with the second challenge on Galeno you see you can just see the challenge coming a mile off you know Inacio loses his man Uh, he's the one chasing back he bundles him over from behind and I think the key thing is the ref is only going to make one decision when he sees that foul, especially when it goes to VAR and he's looking at the screen and he's watching it slow down, replay after replay. He's only going to make one decision. I think if there was no VAR, he could have made a snap choice not to give the yellow card, but as it is, it was the right call for me. I mean, another question is, and forgive me because I don't know this, the exact rules, but like, I know it's a second yellow which results in a red card, but should you even be checking for VAR for a yellow card foul? Like, you know, they can't be doing that the whole game. I, I I understand it resulted in a red card, but I don't know. I, and also the fact that, you know, the Braga players screamed for it. You know, they just straight on the ref, all three of them surrounded them. I mean, in hindsight, for me, <laughs> Braga were better off playing against an 11-man sporting than a 10-man sporting, which I think we're about to get onto. Yeah, no, it's a very, very point because we both wanted to see 11 against 11, obviously, and it did completely change the game. Braga had already, for me, been on top, I think, in the first 20 minutes of the game, they had more of the ball uh, and they looked pretty impressive. In fact, I thought they looked pretty relentless after the red card. Yeah. Uh, and that first half, we were texting during the first half because I specifically said Braga had to score in that first half, in that spell when they were so dominant because you just knew that Sporting were holding on for dear life to get to half time. And if they did get into half time at 0 0, which they did, they would have had a great opportunity then to get in a changing room, calm themselves down, regroup motivate themselves uh, and the second half was going to be a very very different affair and a much more organized affair I don't think it takes a genius you know to work out that was going to happen I mean you look at the stats Barney Sporting had one shot on target and that was Mateus's goal they had five shots in total compared to Braga who had four shots on target and 16 shots total 
you can dress it up as much as you like. The simple fact is that when you have that many chances, you have to take one. I mean, it is difficult for Braga. They've had issues up front this season. Spira was unavailable, obviously, because he's on loan from Sporting. I think he's been on the score sheet a couple of times recently. Their former star striker was starting up front for Sporting and having his own goal-scoring issues, by the way. But they started with Abel Ruiz. I don't know what you make of him. He's been hot and cold this season. He did start quite brightly in the game, but he didn't totally convince me, I think. The issue that I have with him is his decision-making. I think he passes when he should shoot and he shoots when he should mm. pass. I think he's a good finisher when he makes the right call, but too often he just doesn't make that right choice for me. That instance when he rounded um, Adnan and, you know, he just that heavy touch just took it yeah. too far away. And Case in point. But for me, I mean, I didn't feel like Braga had too many clear-cut chances. I mean, the only one that sprung to mind was, um, Raul, was it Raul Silva when he just was... Um, you know, sliding in, just oh, a better touch, you know, could have gone in the back of that. Centre-back's I mean, finish, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I think Braga are going to be absolutely gutted with this performance, but it's it's just that you see it, I feel like you see it a lot, where a team, your opponent goes down to 10 men, it takes you a while and you still haven't scored and that pressure, just it just feels like it's never going to happen. It just builds and builds and builds. I mean, what I will say, I, I wanted to... Amron got it spot on at half time. Like you said, Braga were the better team with 11 men. They went down to 10 men. They were still the better team for the rest of that half. You know, those substitutions of dragging Paulinho and Nunes Santos off, bringing on Neto to fill up that go to a back five and Mateus Nunes to go four in front of them. No striker and play with that low block and draw because, you know, there was so much space in behind Sporting at that beginning of the game. And this is where I'm a, a little bit conflicted and I wanted to sort of look at the bigger picture of Amron's tactics recently because. There's been two, they've dropped points recently, those two draws. And I just feel like the tactics aren't quite right. For me, completely wrong in this game. It's taking them to go down two goals against Bisa to start playing and start looking like looking like they're going to try and get a goal. And I feel like we've seen that a lot this season. They've relied on late goals to get points over the line. Because what we've seen is we know Amarin has built a really strong team in terms of belief, in terms of knowing that they can get a point, they can get a win late on. But what we've got to perhaps look at in the future is this problem, which I'm starting to see more and more, is that they don't start games well. They don't seem to be set up right. There's very little flexibility in his formation, which I think in the B-side game, for example, when Kratos ended up playing as a striker and there was an extra man forward, that's when things started to click for Sporting. But he never changes from that back five. And I, I know, it, let's be fair, this it's worked so far this season. But what I'm trying to say is, they can react well. Amarin can make see in a game how to make a change to change the game. But it's the preparation and the way they set up is what's a little worrying. You know what? I think it's a really interesting point. And actually, the irony of what you're saying is that that's all true, except I think they actually set up better for this game against Braga. I thought dropping Thiago Thomas and bringing in uh, Nuno Santos was definitely the right call and what they need. I thought he made the difference against BSAD when he came on. So I thought he did start with the lineup. That was correct. The irony being that in the game where he sets up correctly, the game completely changes after the 15 minutes when uh, Ignacio gets sent off. Second half, I thought he made the right call, although it was a very risky tactic because he reset that back five. As you said, he could have been tempted to go to back four, but he wasn't. In fact, the way they were playing, it was often more like a back six with one of the, with the defensive midfielder kind of dropping in. They really sat back. It was a very high-risk strategy because you could tell. And I'm not going to try and act like... I'm making predictions after the fact. But at the time, I could tell the way this game was going to go and it was going to be that one chance if Sporting were going to get it. And that's exactly what happened. They sat back, they soaked up the pressure 
And when they had that one chance, and let's, I just want to say full credit because it was a really good goal. It was a really good instinctive pass by Pedro Porro for the free kick to see the run. They took Braga, you know, they took Braga by surprise and really took that chance. And Mateus Nunes, I mean, what a nice story. You know, the guy's been coming mm. back from coronavirus-related uh, symptoms. He got, I forget the team, but he's had a really important last-minute goal previously in this season. So for him to get a second one is a really nice story. And yeah, I think it, it, it was just an incredible result. Um, I do just want to give credit as well to another player who came in for this game, Fedal, uh, who I thought made a ma- massive difference. It was it was such an improvement having him in that back line. They, they used Mateus Reese as a kind of makeshift centre-back against uh, Bisa. And I don't think it's a coincidence that they conceded two goals in that game. I don't think he's particularly defensively strong. So incredible, incredible result. It, it was so intense. There was so much pressure in the game. And after... And after the game, there was so much relief amongst the players. I said in the intro to the podcast, Barney, a week is a long time in football because a week ago, when they drew against Morarens, they drew against B-Sad, they were dropping points left, right and centre. And we were really concerned about their title chances. A week later, they've got the win that they need in a really fantastic battling performance. Porto slipped up, which we will come on to in a second. And, you know, their season, had it seems to have turned around. And now with just five games to go and that six-point cushion, maybe... It's time to start believing. I think I've said that before in this show. <laughs> yeah, they 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 can easily look back at the end of the season, and for me, this game is is the is the one. It was before the game, and I mean, just to be honest with everyone, I'm I'm going to bed really early, so I watched the first half. I went to bed. <laughs> I got woke up in the middle of a baby, and I was like, I've, I just assumed that they'd lost the game, and then to see that they'd won, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, before we move on, because. Uh, I did want to talk a little bit more about Braga because I listened to the PortugueseSoccer.com podcast and he was on there he was talking about whether we can say there is a big four in Portugal with Braga mm. being that fourth and just whether what you think about if they deserve to be in this big four because they, they will finish fourth this season I think I think Benfica will finish they'll win their game and go five points clear of them and Carlos Carvalho after this game talked about how the focus is beating their 16 point of last season which they they probably will with five games left it's just for me it's a little underwhelming considering the position they were in earlier in the season you know and so yeah I, I for me I I don't think we can quite call it a, a big four just yet well I don't want to quite get into semantics but I think it's very fair to to assume that they'll be in the top four most seasons I haven't got statistics in front of me I think they finished in fourth place quite a number of seasons recently but to call it a big four I don't think Braga consider themselves one of the four big teams in Portugal. I think the other three teams have too much success domestically and in Europe. I think if Braga were to pull off a league title, then they would have a claim to that. I think it would be good to see Braga picking up one or two more domestic trophies. I think I was slightly disappointed by how they didn't, you know, sake their claim to being one of the biggest teams. Look, with Carlos Carvalho, they're definitely on the right track. I think he is the manager yeah. for them as long as they can keep him depending which players they keep this summer because I think unfortunately for them it's not a guarantee that they'll keep all their best players you know some of those players could definitely be poached uh, not even just the young ones you know working at players like Maserati as well I think players like that could be pinched I think they need to invest in their defence as well I think they need defensive reinforcements but they're on the right track Cavalli is the right manager and I don't think they're a million miles away but yeah there's work to be done for them I mean for me I I was thinking it was I think about this game because they were obviously weren't present in the Braga squad, but I think Sporting have done so, so well to offload Borgia and Spora to them because, for me, none of those are an improvement on that Braga team. And 
if they were to have found replacements from elsewhere and say just got cash for Paulinho, mm. you know, they could have perhaps been in a stronger position. I mean, I think another way of looking at it because is how many players in that Braga squad would get into the big freeze starting eleven? I mean, because mm. there's a guy, but then you got Poro Manafa, Gonzalez, and you were playing well. Galana as well. You got say Pote, Corona, Rafa. That there, mm. there's no one really there that is going to start in these big three teams, and. They have improved from last season with the appointment card, like you said, but they need signings for me. And it, it's, it cannot just be fringe players from the big three. They need to, you know, go that level higher. I can't let this this point slide, Barney, without... I know there's Braga fans screaming Ali Almazrati's name when you say players who wouldn't start for the big three. He's the one player for me that would start. I think he would start for, for Mavica. Well, look, they'll need to step up next season if they're going to want to be seriously considered part of those top four teams uh, in Portugal. Let's deal with Porto, though, Barney, because this was another game, obviously, that had huge ramifications at the top of the title race. Man, I said before the game, do not underestimate this Moro inside. And Porto were only able to get a 1-1 draw with them, a side who I have been championing for a good few weeks. And I'm not surprised at all that they got uh, the point that they did. Now, there were a number of key talking points in the game. We're going to deal with all of those. But I think the first thing we should just deal with uh, were the events after the game. Some pretty unsavoury scenes after the game with Sergio Contessao and members of staff uh, being very aggressive towards the referee. Sergio Contessao was shown a red card at full time for his protestations uh, against the ref. And another member of Contessao's team, who I'm not sure who it was, was particularly aggressive. I just want to say before we get into the game, absolutely disgraceful scenes. Personally, I hope Sergio Contessao is given a touchline ban until the end of the season. Now, I know Porto fans are going to be saying, but what about other managers? It's happened in the past, and I totally agree with that. I think Ruben Amarim is equally guilty of doing this kind of thing. And I think other managers and other members of staff have done this kind of thing in the past, but clearly the bans that are given to these managers is not enough. The behaviour was pathetic and childish from Contessao. He's supposed to be leading that team. Just take your result like a man. It was so childish. I, I mean, I sympathise with some of the decisions that they weren't given, and I'm going to come on to that in a second, but I just thought the behaviour was completely atrocious. Uh, you've watched the video as well. There's videos going around of the behaviour post-match. There was another member of staff, the guy with grey hair in the video, who was incredibly aggressive who was had to be physically restrained from really getting up up towards the referee I thought was uh, pretty disgraceful behavior I might be overreacting Barney but for me if a member of staff acted like that in the Premier League I think they would be sacked by the club because the behavior was completely completely unacceptable yeah I agree with that and I think the thing for me as well is with the red card I think Conchital is banned for the next game at least isn't he but out of all the managers in this league arguably Conchital has the most influence on his team on the touchline. I think he's one of those managers who he very much motivates the team and the team play for him. And the fact that now Porto are in this tough, tough position where they've got to get this closest six-point gap in the next five games and he's not going to be there for the next game, it's really poor from him. I personally feel he's got, there's an arrogance around with Conchital Torres the ref. And I think, I generally think he believes his managerial ability is above the standard of the referees in this league, if you see what I mean. I think mm -hmm. he thinks he's better than than what he's been given. And you see that in the fact that he, he still doesn't wear an armband and keeps getting fined. And <laughs> I agree with him because it's a fucking stupid rule, but it is a rule to so just put your armband on it and it's fine. And and I can't remember if I said this before in this podcast, and I don't, I don't know if you agree with me on this, but for me, referees are humans. And no matter who you are, if someone is on the touchline berating you for 90 minutes and suddenly there's a 50-50 call to be made, you might give it to the guy 
against the guy who's been pushing your buttons all game. And I know mm. it won't happen with every decision. And 99 percent of the times, referees will are impartial and they do their job well. But throughout the season, there are going to be instances where emotion will come into it. And I just think they never does himself any favors by being so openly against referees, which is just all season has been like this, basically. Yeah, I think it's a perfectly valid point. And I think it is important to touch on the referee in this game. Now, I do have my own reservations about some of the refs in the Portuguese league. I think a lot of fans go overboard and, you know, suggesting that their referees are biased against mm. certain teams. I think a lot of fans like to suggest that. Portuguese ref make more mistakes than in other leagues, which I don't think is correct. But the one objection I do have to a lot of the refereeing styles is that the refs in Portugal do seem to be quite standoffish sometimes with the players. And I think that can sometimes uh, increase the tension in matches uh, unnecessarily. But in this match, I don't think that was the case. Hugo Miguel took uh, charge of this one. And I have to say, I thought he managed the game very well. Uh, He had a number of big calls to make at important moments, which he did with pretty good success. I'll elaborate on that in a moment. I think he managed the Porto bench very well uh, during a fairly heated game. And for me, he had four big penalty calls to make in the game. Four big penalty calls. And it's just a shame because I think he got three of them bang on, including booking Taromi for simulation. And the only bad mark in the game, which I think is a pretty big one, was his failure to give Porto a second penalty for the foul on Chico Conchasal by the Mororens left-back, Abdu. Now, I sympathise with the ref because a penalty decision is such a tough decision to make. He's got a split-second decision to make and he has to make a call, which is essentially 50-50 as he sees it. Now, in this case, he's got it wrong. But that's fair enough because we've got VAR. So for me, I think VAR in this situation has to have his back. You know, he's made that decision in the game. He's gone, this is how I've seen it. The VAR are the ones you have to go into his ear and say, look, you know what, Hugo? I think you need to have a second look at this because we don't want to get this one wrong. And it didn't happen. Why didn't it happen? That's who I placed the blame on for that second foul, which for me was a penalty. It was a clumsy challenge, uh, which should have been a pen. I think there's this strange phenomenon around referees, and I think this applies to VAR too, who are very reluctant to give a second penalty. You know, they're very reluctant to give a second pen. They just feel like they shouldn't do it. And I know winning games on penalties is not very popular. And I know this game had a lot of drama because it was a draw. And I'm sorry to say the boring thing, but I think the game should have ended 2-1 with Porto scoring two penalties. Rival fans are going to hate me for saying it because Porto have had a lot of penalties this year. But I think the rules are the rules. And in this game, Porto deserved two penalties. I mean, that's sort of assuming that they put that second one away. I mean, mm, to, be fair, to, to be fair to, to Remy, I mean, his first penalty was, was, was really good. I mean... Look, it's going to happen at some points in the season. It's going to be harder. And it just, obviously, we're at a crucial stage of this season. But the other thing I've, I sort of feel is that Porto shouldn't be relying on penalties against a team like Morenz. And like you say, they've been good this season. And I think they they play, played well in this game. But I, I do want to come back to Morenz in a bit. But I'm just going to, I wanted to spend a little bit more time on Conscious Sal because I just feel like, like I mentioned with um, Amarin, there's this real reluctance and to, I'm going to say the word again, arrogance, where, that I feel that he doesn't feel like he should change his team. Mm. It should be the opposition who changed them. He, his, he feels his team is good enough to win these games. And on their day, I, that first 11 that Porto play is probably one of the best teams in this league. But Albert, they've played so many games. These players have played had a long season in the Champions League. And... If you're an opposing manager, Porto are an absolute dream because all we need to do is watch last week's game and you know who you're going to play, 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 what players you're going to play against. You pretty much know how they're going to play as well. And you could argue that in recent weeks in the league, Porto's results have 
only sort of come about through the quality of players they've they've got in that team. And I, I don't know if I said this last week, but this loving with Moriga has to stop. And the only way it's going to stop is for him to leave by the looks of things because you're coming up against Abdul Bar. That guy is fucking massive. <laughs> He's got no legs, man. You need to play pace against him. You've mm. got Luis Diaz, who played striker in the Champions League. Conchita was more than happy to change it up in the Champions League. But why won't you do it in this, in this league? I think... This league is full of tactically astute managers. We know that. You know, they might not have the strongest squad, but there's a lot of decent managers in this league. And so it's so easy to just work out Porto. You can just watch every game this season and it's pretty much the same thing. And I just, I, I'm just a bit sick of seeing the same 11, seeing the same style and conscious how just expecting it, a win to come from it. It's just a little bit boring. And I just feel like he's, like I mentioned earlier, He's got this little bit of arrogance that he feels he's better than this league. And Moran's proved that, you know, that they're not, they're not what they weren't at the weekend. I think it's a really important, and I really want to address uh, the Sergio Conchista situation head on because I don't want my opinions to be ambiguous. I want to, you know, state my uh, claim about Conchista head on. Uh, I've always been a defender of his. I give him full credit for Porto's success in the Champions League. I think his management was the main reason they did as well as they did in the Champions League. The way he managed those bid games was fantastic mm. and I will always give him credit for that. But you do have to ask, start asking one or two questions of how he's dealt with the league, exactly as you said. Uh, I think the results in the league have not been good enough and that's evident by the fact that they're not top of the table because for Porto, anything other than being top of the table is not good enough. They've dropped too many points against smaller teams for me. And like yeah. you, I cannot understand why he keeps going with Morego. Now, Again, Morega is someone I want to deal with properly and professionally because I know he's a very divisive figure online and I know it's almost become a running joke to criticise Morega. And I'm not going to I'm not going to sit here and say that Morega is a player without any qualities. You know, he's clearly got great physical attributes. He's clearly a real hard worker for the team. But you just have to look at how he's done this season and recognise that he's been completely ineffective. He does not offer anything for the team uh, when he plays. Martin has a show that he offers more up front than Moriga. Evan Ilsen has looked decent when he plays. So I don't understand why he plays the two up front to Amy. Now, I don't necessarily have an issue with the formation. If he wants to play two strikers, bring in Martinez, bring in Evan Ilsen, or go for something different. Why not go for a 4-3-3? Exactly as you said, put pace up against those slow defenders. Uh, utilise those wingers more. Corona, what an asset to that team he is. And I sometimes feel like he's wasted playing. Uh, on that far right-hand side where his only function is to put balls into the box. Listen, I'm not a manager, right? I'm not a coach. I'm not one to sit here and tell them how to set up the team. But like you, I have very, very big reservations about the inability to see what seems glaringly obvious to to most football fans watching Porto play. Yeah, I, I, I'm just going to say a few players because you mentioned a few already, but I also want to include Fabio Vera, Felipe Anderson in there and even Conchacel's son, you know, Chico Conchacel. They're not as good as that starting eleven, no doubt, but they offer that little bit of difference. I think Fabio Vieira re- in recent games when he's come on, he's shown, he's offered something different to that team. And I wanted to go back to Moran's out because like you said, you've seen them a lot this season. They, they, they got a good draw. I mean, that lovely corner routine for the first goal. Yeah. It, don't see enough of it, do we? Because I mean, <laughs> Porto did it. I think Porto did it in, against Chelsea in the Champions League, and it almost paid off a few times. But well, it was clearly very effective because it, it got them the goal that they needed. I thought they set up pretty well. They set up pretty solid, as you say. 
Um, I think they read what Porto were going to do pretty well and knew that if they sort of soaked up a bit of pressure, they did look very bright on the counter-attack. I thought they were kind of slightly wasteful on a couple of occasions. I, I forget the player's name, but there was an occasion when one of the Moraine's players was through on goal and ra- rounds the keeper. And forgive me, Porto fans, I'm shouting at the TV screen for him to score because he's created such a good chance for himself. And he decides to pass the ball along the ground for the Porto defender to clear off the line. Real shame. So they could have had more from the game, arguably. I really like Vasco Siabra, the manager. I really like him, Barney. I think he's gone under the radar this season, obviously because of what happened at Boa Vista, where he was brought in as a promising young manager to elevate that team with a lot of investment. It didn't happen. And he's taken, I said it before, an unglamorous job at Morrowinds and done some really good work. They've gone under the radar a bit more than a team like Santa Clara have. Uh, They haven't got quite the same headlines, but look, they're only seven points off Europe. You know, it's been a good season for them. And I think um, you highlighted him on Twitter, Passanata, the goalkeeper. Yeah, I think he, he was he was phenomenal in this game. He was absolutely monstrous. He, I've really rated him for a long time. It's funny because I remember doing a tweet about him quite early on in the season where he had an absolute nightmare. I think he scored an own goal and let in an absolute sitter. And since then, the transformation has been fantastic. I think we're really blessed with some good goalkeepers in this league from some of the smaller teams. And, and he's definitely one of them. Well, just to tie things up at the top of the table, Barney, we should discuss the Benfica game. And weirdly, although they won the match 2-1, I actually want to focus on Santa Clara and particularly their midfield, which includes two of my favourite players to watch, Hida Masamorita and Lincoln. Both players we've mentioned once or twice on the show, but I think we both want to spend some proper time with them this week. Marita, what a joy to watch, man. It might seem like a strange thing to say about someone who's essentially a kind of utility man. He's not a fancy creative midfielder, you know, showing off skills and goals. But I don't know what it is about him. Like for some strange reason, I cannot stop watching him when he plays. He works so hard for the team. He presses well. He's intelligent. He's got good passing. And I often find myself watching Santa Clara and just watching him without mm. watching, you know, just watching him play it without watching the rest of the game. Wonderful player. Lincoln as well. Uh, I'm not going to get too ahead of myself in Lincoln because I think in fairness, there is an inconsistency problem with him. But when he plays, he offers so much and he is that skillful eye-catching player in that midfield when he wants to be left-footed, quick, good control. Uh, I'm sure you agree with me, but let me know what you think of those two players. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think you've got to give a lot of, well, a huge amount of credit um, to Lincoln for Santa Clara's goal, that closing down of um, Otamani, that work that, mm. you know, it's, it's far too often, well, more often than not, when a, a attacker's closing down a defender and the defender's clearly going to hoof the ball upfield, you know, that, that attacker's not going to put his body in the line to try and block it, you know. Mm. Um, and Lincoln did that and um, definitely certainly credits Cole. On Marisa, I think the, the best point you made there was his intelligence mm. because the way he, he gets across about that pitch, you know, which requires a huge amount of stamina, but the, the positions he pops up in as well. And I think he, you would say he's defensive before, but I just love, I love seeing him like find space further up the pitch. I think, I think he's brilliant that. I mean, if, if we're going to stick on Santa Clara for a minute, Albert, I, Con Murphy mentioned in his commentary, and I think you mentioned it on this podcast um, recently, that you think Santa Clara will be hopeful of a European spot next season. And and they've in recent I think this game, the sporting game recently, the Porto game recently, they were all really good performances. They probably deserve to get points. I think they're perhaps unlucky to not in some of those games. But what do they need to do to improve and say get into that European spot next season? Because it's beginning. There's a few teams this season that have shown promise, and there's teams who are expecting to improve next season. But what 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 do they need to do to to get themselves up there? Well, I think the first thing. Uh, is to deal with the mentality. I think psychologically there's a lot they can do. I feel like when I've been watching them sometimes this season, they haven't quite 
had that ruthless mentality to really see out games and grind out points or wins where they could have got them. They've played a little bit naively at times. So I think, obviously, I don't know what's going on in the training ground, what the managers said to the players. But, you know, if at the beginning of the next season, you know, in pre-season, they have those team meetings where they say, look, this is the standard that we're going to set ourselves this season. This is really what we're going to aim for. Um, I think there's a lot they can do there. In terms of players, I'm not sure who they need to bring in. I think it's more about who they can keep. If they can keep those players, if they can keep Marita for one more season, I think that'll be uh, fantastic. A lot is said about the fact that they're on the Azores Islands and that makes it difficult for them to attract players because, you know, they're so far away from the mainland and it's quite an isolated place to live. But I wonder if they can they can flip that to their advantage, you know, make it a real community field, make it that siege mentality, really build that team mentality within their team, you know, about their location, about their team spirit. I think there's a lot they can do. And I think the other thing is, We've seen how weak Vittorio have been this season and, and that traditional fifth place, I think, unless they really get their act together next season, I feel like there's a fifth place up for grabs. And if one of these teams with maybe a little bit of investment, a little bit of a change in mindset, can just change their mentality, I think there's a fifth, fifth spot up for grab. And I think a team like Santa Clara, perfectly placed uh, to go for that next season. Yeah, and I think to sort of expand on what you're saying about the, those islands and building a community feel within it, but they could also make that a fortress because I think exactly. when I looked at when I looked at their form, it's sort of home and away. And I know the season's different, obviously, about the fans, but pretty even their home and away form. You know, it's the same amount of wins, same amount of losses. There's no, there's no sort of a home advantage. And if they were to do that next season, because you know, I know they've got to travel when they go away, but. It's a big, it's a big journey for those teams coming to play Santa Clara when they're at home, and if they really made that like a, a proper, proper fortress, that that could be the difference next season. And the other thing I thought about in terms of players is striker because I know Cezanne had he's been good, but essentially he was feeling that filling that role Thiago Santana left, and it, I don't feel he's got the same presence as Santana did up top. If you know what I mean, he's got mm. a few goals, less yeah. not like uh, some important goals, but that presence there. And if you look at the goal difference as well, that's the other defining thing I feel about Santa Clara. The teams around them, uh, so Santa Clara got a goal difference of plus two, Victoria got a goal difference of minus six, and Passo got a goal difference of minus two. So it's all pretty similar. But when you look at Braga in fourth, they have a goal difference of plus 20. The big three all have a goal difference of plus 30 plus, you know, 36, 37, whatever. So it's got to be a striker. And I think, obviously, that is the hardest thing to find in football, a decent striker. Um uh, you know, but if they can find that hidden gem, um, and I even wrote down someone like Pedro Mendes, who's you know on loan from Sporting, mm. you know, that sort of striker, so someone like that, who just bangs in a, a hat full of goals. That that could be that could be the difference for them. Because yeah, if they keep that midfield, they're they're solid. Uh, you do sense that there's just one piece of the puzzle missing for them to really kick on. I think that's a really interesting point. I think let's focus on Benfica before we move on. And uh, the remarkable thing about this game from Benfica's perspective was that they managed to score two goals whilst only having one shot on target. Now, obviously, their first goal came from a Santa Clara own goal. Um, and if you're being... Lovely harsh, finish. <laughs> <laughs> just a shame it was at the wrong end. Uh, but honestly, from, from Benfica's perspective, it was pretty woeful stuff. You know, there was zero creativity on that pitch. They barely created any chances. The goal that they did score came, came from Chiquinho. And I was really pleased for him to get on the score sheet. I think he, along with Chervy, is one of the players most underused in that Benfica score. Whatever he decides to do in the future, I, I do hope the best for him because I think he's a very talented player. But they're really, really missing some some spark in that team at the moment. Albert, on Chiquino, he's got 
Um, two goals in 235 minutes for Benfica in the league season. And sorry to bring up XG with Benfica, but that's with an overall XG of 0.88 for him. Rafa, Walshmit, Darwin, Pizzi, Pedrino all have a higher XG than their goal return. And Chiquinho's is more than double what he's, he's been expected. To. So there you go. I think I, I just would have loved to have seen him more this season. I think he's a, clearly like a, good, a useful player to have. I think he's, whenever he's come on, he's done something a little bit different. And I agree with you, it was a bit of a flat performance from Benfica, um, similar to last week um, against Gil Vicente. But something that I did, did put in perspective for me is that they are... F- only four points behind Porto. And I know mm-hmm. they're a bit, fair bit behind Sporting as well. But And I, Porto dropped points this week. But we have always been saying all season, Sporting have a fantastic season. They're on Bs. And Porto are having a fantastic season. They're, 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 they're keeping the gap on, on Sporting. And for Benfica, to only be four points behind. You know, this was a huge win. And like I said, Santa Clara have performed well against the big teams. And it's not always going to be pretty, is it? I just feel like, yeah, I, 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 it is a significant win for me, and I, I, despite it being quite a disappointing performance. Yeah, and good for them to bounce back from what was a, a poor loss against Gio Vicente. Look, I think the thing for me about Benfica is that they had such a brilliant start to the season. I mean, they won, what was it, the first five games in a row, maybe more, and we were sitting here thinking, Christ, they're going to walk this league. You know, they looked fantastic. And then it all fell off a cliff, and I just think they never got it back. And George Jesus will sing to the cows come home about the fact that it was all down to coronavirus. I don't, I don't buy that. I do think it impacted them, but it wasn't just that. I think he got his team selections wrong a number of times this season. And I think it will be a season two, forget for them. I, next season, Benfica are going to be fascinating because they've ended the season in, in, in relatively good form and they, and they found more consistency in their game. I think there's a lot of players on that side who should probably move on. Um, who aren't quite good enough for this Benfica team, which is a shame because, you know, the striker that they spent all that money on is sitting on the bench and the striker that none of their fans seem to like is is their top scorer. So, it's you know, that doesn't really bode well for what their last summer's transfer policy was. Look, it's been, like I said, a season to forget, improvement needed, but there's still a chance that they could finish second and guarantee themselves Champions League football. So, you know, it, it might not be the end of the world at the end of the season. And the best thing, I mean, before this weekend's football... I was sort of predicting if Sporting would drop points and Porto would uh, gain points, and then you had this interesting situation where Benfica could be the kingmakers in set because they mm. both got to play, they've got to play Sporting and Porto. What mm. I think is now the more likely is that they they could catch Porto, like you said. I think they yeah. that, that's that's going to be the more interesting battle. So we'll, we'll have to see. With everything we just said, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if Benfica won both those games. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you, man. I'd, I'd actually put money on that now. <laughs> well, look, let's. Move away from the top end of the table. The next game we're going to deal with is CD Nacional versus Vitoria Gimarães. I know we spoke about Vitoria quite a lot on quite a few podcasts recently, but this game as well does seem worth looking at. It was the worst two teams in the division on current form going against each other. That said, been put, there has been some positive signs for Vitoria. They beat Santa Clara last weekend, but it was back to losing ways for them now with the midweek loss against Porto and now this loss against bottom of the table side CD Nacional who arrested their 10 game losing run at the expense of Vitoria. I'm going to let you run with this Barney. Go on. What have you got to say about the game? If I'm honest, I feel like I've said so the same things about Vitoria. I mean, for, for Nacional's goal, Amaro, I know he's a young centre but he should never be turning his back, you know, mm. whilst trying to make that block. Uh, I remember hearing Gary Neville talk about how Peter Schmeichel would say like, if you're not going to get a proper block in it, don't. It's much better for the keeper to see mm. the true fight of the ball rather than do it. And I think that was, I think that was poor from him. 
but yeah, just it's just so messy, wasn't it? And I, I, they went to four, they went to four at the back, which they seemed to be a bit of a change. And when we saw that, we we're like, oh, they're going to go for goals. Season National, the whipping boys at the moment, they're going to go for it, and it just oh, fell apart, mate. I mean, the thing that makes this game even worse was it wasn't even the worst performance we've seen from them in recent times. There were one or two chances. They hit the bar a couple of times. A great effort from Ramirez. They hit the bar. I was willing oh, yeah. to go in. Uh, they yeah. also had a goal ruled out, of course, from Estupinan. and he was ruled to have pushed his man. Correct decision for me, but, you know, fine margins at the end of the day. They are still just so low on confidence and you can see it in the players, Barney. There's such a lack of belief and I really do worry where that confidence is going to come from. They haven't had that new manager bounce with Bino. And perhaps I was wondering whether that's because they employed somebody from the inside and maybe bringing someone from in from the outside of that camp mm. to freshen things up, you know, would have been a good idea. But we just haven't seen that change of confidence that they desperately, desperately need. I think that's a really good point because when your team is in the rut and, you know, you've got the same staff around you and everything like that, you just need someone like oh, Big Sam just to come in and say, right, lads. <laughs> <laughs> we're doing things my way I mean massive massive win for Nash now I'm not sure if it's going to be enough to keep them up they've got a tough run in with Benfica Real Family Cow Marins I mean and and to be fair you know like you said they were saved by the posts I think twice in this game I mean you say it's a massive result Barney but and I look I'm pleased for them that they got a win but it's only a massive result if they follow it up with another one because yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. what's to stop them just going on, on, on another losing run and, and losing the next five five games of the season you know they they have to start showing some fight. I mean, on that, Albert, when you look at Victoria's next five games, Ferenz, Famalicao, Maritimo and Benfica, I've, I've highlighted those four because I could see them losing every single one of those games. Well, they're all playing They're playing all teams that need something, aren't they? All the three of those yeah, teams yeah, yeah. are fighting relegation and Benfica, of course, are trying to guarantee themselves a bit of cash in the Champions League. You know, It's really worrying times for Victoria. And I'll just end on this point from me. Victoria sacked Ivo Vieira in favour of Thiago. And just look at where they both are now. Well, look, on to the last game before we move on, Barney. Uh, we're going to deal with another relegation battle game, and that was Maritimo's 1-0 victory against Boavista. Maritimo are a really interesting one for me, Barney. I just talked about Family Cal there and Ivo Vieira. Uh, and Maritimo interests me because they employed their new manager, Julio Vasquez, at exactly the same time as Family Cal did, when they were in a very similar situation to Family Cal. And they haven't had as many fa- headlines as Family Cal have, naturally, because obviously Family Cal have been pretty special since Ivo Vieira's arrival. But they do deserve a bit of credit themselves for the run that they've been on since Vasquez has joined. It's four wins from seven games now, out of the relegation zone and up to 30 points in the table. I think there's definite positive signs for them. And I think uh, the work that, that Vasquez is doing has gone a little bit unnoticed. What they've done really well is performing against clubs around them in the table. Exactly. Like, you know, getting getting good wins and, you know, six-pointers and all that. And, I mean, one man for me, because, you know, the first half of the season, the talk was all Rodrigo Pino, and, you know, he's got his move to Benfica in the summer. But he hasn't really featured that much. But it's, it's Joel Tagu, the the other striker. I mean, he, he created this goal for me in this game. And I think he's been a real leader. He's been like a, you know, he's he's the the man you think of when you think of Maritino sort of succeeding. And, uh, yeah, I've been really, really impressed with him. And, uh, and I agree with you. I think it has gone under the radar how how well they've performed since they've got dragged into this relegation battle. They've really turned things around for me. I think it's at least two man of the match awards for Joel to go since uh, Julio Vasquez has come in. So he's really become a key player for them. I want to ask you, boy, are you worried about Bovista? Because obviously I suppose a lot depends on how Ferenc do in the Algarve derby tonight uh, and for the rest of the season, of course. But 
for me, I I do think they've got enough quality to stay up. I tweeted this out. I think barring some kind of disaster or a miracle from friends, the worst that they're really going to end up with is that relegation playoff game. And I've been on record as saying, I think that's a complete waste of time. I'm not worried about a relegation playoff at all. Um, I don't think that's going to trouble any team in the top division. We see how unsuccessful it is in leagues like the Bundesliga. So, yeah, that's my question to you. Are are you worried about them at all? Well, my point I was going to make about them is they do not want to be in that playoff spot because they are so inconsistent. Well, true, true. And I can can absolutely see them playing a team in Liga Pro and it's for me. It's not a foregone conclusion that Bovis are going to win that game. I think they, they, you know, there's been real surprise results for them this season in both ways. You know, they they beat Benfica. That was a brilliant game, but then they're losing games like this, and they're just so I can't predict them at all. And I think that's the most worrying thing. You've got they've at no point this season have they shown a consistent run of form, mm-hmm. um, and, that, and that's a real issue. And I, and that I would be so desperate if I was a Bovista player just to not be in that position because who knows what could happen. Well, whatever happens, I'm, you know, as much as I've criticised the relegation playoff, I will be watching it with great interest. I think at the very least it'll be an exciting game. Well, before we wrap up the show, there is just one topic that's been bubbling away under the surface uh, for a little while now that we want to deal with. And that is the rumours going around that the Primera Liga are considering reducing the number of teams in the top flight from 18 to 16 now. Now, I think we've got slightly different opinions on this, Barney. I think you're slightly more open to it than I am and I'm a bit more resistant. So I'll let you run with it first and then we'll have a chat about whether we think it or not it's a good idea. Okay, well, I mean, I'm not sure about it myself, but when I started my notes, I, I went down this path and I sort of try to expand it and try and make a convincing argument for, for it because instinctively I'm against it. But with less games, it surely only ultimately benefits the big teams, right? But then when you think of domestic cups that happened this season and how basically the teams from the league populate the final rounds and and when you look at teams like Braga and say Passos, sort of more obviously for me, who have recently looked a little jaded and, and tired, going down to 16 teams could be good for them because what we perhaps have to remember is that there's a big golf in this league. And so the teams at the lower end, and I mean, no disrespect, but their players aren't on the same level as the bigger teams and they don't have the same facilities, the same medical staff, et cetera. And so getting them into condition of playing 40 plus games a season is, is, is a much harder task. And we have to remember this vast difference in this league and how it can be a, a real challenge for the, the, the smaller teams to compete for the bigger team. I mean, I do recognise that, Barney, and I do recognise that there is a disparity in class between the top and the bottom. But for me, the main issue I have with it is that, and maybe this is just my own preconception, but for me, you judge the health and the strength of a country's domestic football by the strength of its top division. And having a competitive 18-team league, for me, is is something of a minimum requirement. I'm not comfortable with a 16-team league because for me, it does just feel too light. And obviously, like I said, I do understand the disparity in class between the top and the bottom. But I think everyone who watches the league will agree, and, and, and yourself, I hope, that especially this season, the games between the top teams and the bottom teams have not been embarrassing games to watch, you know. The number of so-called smaller teams putting in good performances against bigger teams this season has been great. I've been presently surprised. And I am therefore quite surprised that the proposed change has come in this season. I mean, 
this season alone, we've seen you know sporting drop points to the likes of Family Cal, B Sad, Morarens, Porto lost to Passos, Benfica had that 3 0 loss to Boa Vista, they lost 2 0 to Gil Vicente just the other day. So, you know, it's not like these teams are, in, are unbeatable, and it's not like the teams at the bottom table are getting beaten 7 or 8 0. Yeah, but if you look to the season before, there was obviously National getting hammered 10 0. Of course. I mean, my next point is sort of following from what we discussed at the beginning of the show about the, the Champions League reform. And if, say, Portugal were to get three clubs into that competition, a smaller domestic season would massively benefit them. So, like, and then you could argue that this gives them a better chance in Europe and so it gives them a better chance of gaining more coefficient points and then possibly another European place from the league. You know, and I know that means catching Germany you're in fourth, but. That would be good for the league, wouldn't it? Because that Champions League money is going to get to another club. And then, by the way, this is one of my pet hates in football. And I, but I'm going to use it to make my point. The money would trickle down. <laughs> <laughs> How you've changed, Bonnie. At the beginning of the show, you were fighting for the little man. You've changed. No, no, listen, listen. I, I, I do understand that. And I think this is where it gets interesting because at the moment, I don't feel like the Premier League is set up uh, in such a way that the small teams benefit from the success of the big teams in mm-hmm. Europe. I think, you know, there are talks about this new TV deal that's going to come in uh, in quite a number of seasons, but maybe in the future uh, that will be the case. So I'm not entirely comfortable with the idea that this 16-team reduction is going to benefit anyone other than the top three teams who I'm sure in a wider European scale need uh, all the help they can get. But if you look inside Portugal, I think what we really are crying out for is a more domestic league. And I'm not convinced that the 16-team league is the solution to that. The only other objection I have, and surprisingly, this is quite eloquently put by George Jesus when these plans were put to him. And he said that if you go ahead with this idea, then suddenly with two teams going out of the top division, there's 50 employees, including players and staff, from those two teams whose employment sees a real detrimental effect. And it does seem very harsh to me to condemn two whole teams to that situation. Yeah, I wouldn't know how to go about implementing going down to 16 teams. It just, at no point would it seem like fair. I, I just like, I, I can't see how it works out. I mean, I can end on my my loosest point and um, cool. perhaps uh, light-hearted one. Um, if you say if you go down to 16 teams, uh, a, a club's going to play 30 games in a season. That could attract high-quality players or perhaps players coming towards the end of their career who might be attracted to the process of, you know, not having to play 50 games a season, but just, just <laughs> playing 30. So you could be getting these like legends who are like, look, I don't want to go to a team where I'm going to have to fucking put a shift in. Or, or you players like, um, I don't know, like uh, who gets injured all the time, like Gareth Bale, or Jack, Jack Wilshere, you know, like a team's not going to, a, te- a team's not going to want them because they can't trust them. But in Portugal, you've only got to play 30 games in a season. <laughs> There you go. You've got it live on air. Barney is turning the Liga Nosh into the retirement league. Maybe this whole thing <laughs> is being constructed with the idea that Cristiano Ronaldo comes home at 39 years of age to play, you know, 10 games a season. Who knows? Look, if you want to reduce the games, I reckon there's a cup a cup competition that you could get rid of in this uh, country that I think is pretty unnecessary. You could probably say the same thing about uh, England. Well. So there's stuff to be done. Look, I'm, I'm not entirely convinced. You haven't convinced me, Barney. That said... The future does seem slightly up in the air for this Primera Liga. And I do think something has to be done to create, you know, a, be- a better package for this league that can be that can be marketed abroad. I think there's so much to love about the league. And I want to see as many teams in this in this top division as possible, as many strong teams in this top division as possible. And can I just say, like, I, I 
I did this as sort of as an exercise in getting these arguments together because I, I I I think it should stay at eighteen. I would hate to see two less teams. I'm I'm going to be gutted when two teams get relegated this season, man. I've grown to love them. So, yeah, yeah. yeah no, I think I think we're we're definitely on the same page. Well, look, uh, we're going to leave it there uh, for this week's show. Obviously, we're both going to be staying up late watching the Algarve derby tonight at nine forty five kickoff. <laughs> I don't <laughs> think for... I'm going to make it, man. <laughs> Uh, Barney's straight to bed after we finish recording. <laughs> no, look, we just want to say thank you very much for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week, of course, discussing all the League and Rush action. Uh, and we'll see how that title race is shaping up this time next week. If you've enjoyed listening, you could leave us a little review on Apple Podcasts if that's the service that you use. Uh, if not, why not recommend it to a friend that you think might enjoy it? Uh, if you want to contact the show, we're on Twitter at Football. Or you can find us on email at longballfootball at gmail.com. But that just needs me to say thank you very much for listening. Uh, and I'll see you. Yeah, I see you.